HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. HRN is offering complimentary business memberships to 50 Black, Indigenous, people of color-owned food businesses this summer. The deadline to apply is July 31st. Each business membership, a $500 value, is an advertising opportunity that will allow businesses disproportionately impacted by COVID-19 to connect with HRN's listening community and promote their work. To apply and review the terms and conditions, go to heritageradionetwork.org B-I-Z. This episode is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee. Learn about the wonderfully tart Montmorency cherry at choosecherries.com. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulgin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the great fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome Chef Huni Kim of New York's Danji and Hanjan. In this episode, we'll talk to Huni about making authentic Korean food in America, his new cookbook, my Korea. And we'll hear Hooney's Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. We send our best everyone coping with the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic, especially those in the hospitality industry, those recovering their health and livelihoods, and all those striving for change. As always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. Julia turned her immersion in French culture and food into a life-changing experience. The passion the French instilled in her for what makes for good food and good eating, launched Julia into a career dedicated to sharing what she'd been taught to value. Well beyond advocating for Americans to appreciate French dishes, Julia's time in France cemented an appreciation for the best, the best way to grow vegetables, rear meat, make sauces, and bake bread. While this can often be misinterpreted as non-essential stuff or even being elitist, That's not how the French see it, because the value of food as a part of your quality of life is deeply embedded in French culture, from country folk to Parisian sophisticates. It's universal. It was this reverence for the land and what it could produce to make life wonderful, and wonderful includes being healthy, that led Julia on her mission to educate Americans about what makes for good food and why they should care about it. Something just as much on our minds today as when Julia first raised the call. Someone who shares a similar passion to Julia is Chef Huni Kim. He's best known as the chef and proprietor of New York City's Danji and Hanjan, two of, the, two of America's most acclaimed Korean restaurants. Born in Seoul but raised a New Yorker, 
Huni trained at Michelin three-star restaurants Danielle and Massa after graduating from the French Culinary Institute. Danji became the first Korean restaurant to receive a Michelin star in 2012 after being named one of the top 10 new restaurants by the New York Times in 2011. Hanjan, opened in 2012, received two stars from the New York Times, who then named Huni the city's leading interpreter of Korean cuisine. Huni's even been recognized as an ambassador of food and culture by the Korean government. He joins us today to share how he's adapted his restaurants in the wake of the pandemic and to talk about his new cookbook, My Korea, Traditional Flavors, Modern Recipes. Welcome to the podcast, Huni. Hi, Todd. So first, how have you and your family been holding up in New York during the lockdown? Um, you know, just uh, trying to be healthy. Um, we live in Long Island City, which is near several nice parks. So we get to go out and walk around a little bit just to get some exercise. But otherwise, we try to stay in most of the time. Um, a lot of cooking at home, a lot of bringing food from my restaurants, uh, and also a lot of getting deliveries. So uh, we're still eating well, I think, but definitely staying home. I see. So now you've been operating your restaurants, or at least from a certain part. So let, I was going to say, are you, you're going back and forth then between Long Island City and Manhattan, where your restaurants are. Yes. Uh, I drive to work every day. Um, Hanjan itself, uh, we are not open to the public. We are just doing meal kit deliveries, which uh, this week is our 16th week. Um, And we deliver about 100 meal kits these days a week. Uh, Whereas Danji, we are open to the public. We have four tables outside um, and... You know, we started doing this last week, and it hasn't been too bad, uh, considering, you know, the city's very deserted these days, I feel like. A lot of my friends, a lot of our clients have left town for Long Island, Jersey, or even further away. Uh, but, you know, we are lightly staffed, but at least um, some of our you know, staff members can take a check home every week. And that's what I was going to ask you. There's sort of, there's been a lot of discussion. In fact, I was able to interview Angie Marr at the beginning of the season, right after lockdown started. And it was sort of enough time between closing and figuring out a kind of new temporary normal of sort of survival mode. But I wouldn't say Mm -hmm. it's it's been anyone's definition of how you want to be a chef and run a restaurant. Where have you come out in terms of, is this a, you know, sort of pause because it's the best you can do? Is it short term? Like what's been the impact and what do you think is is the next thing? Um, hmm. So Hanjan, we started our meal kit deliveries even before the city closed us down just because we noticed a big uh impact on just people coming into the restaurant and not feeling comfortable about it so uh two weeks before we were shut down our numbers started going down and our regulars basically told us they don't feel safe uh Mm. being in an uh an enclosed space so for us we started delivering or bringing food to them the following week. Um, And, you know, the first week we, I think, delivered less than 80, which was still really, it was a lot. And then by three weeks in, we were doing 160 with 50 people on the wait list every week. Um, So, you know, for us, we've been very fortunate, very lucky that we have, uh, a clientele that's very, you know, in family oriented, I guess. Uh, they wanted to stay home with their kids because, well, they had to. Schools were closed. <laughs> um, and, you know, food that they wanted was Korean comfort food. And mm. I think that's one of the, the big things that I've realized, um, even when we're ordering food uh, for delivery to eat at home, we want comfort food. We don't want anything fancy. 
We just want, you know, we want <laughs> food to take care of us, uh, at least mentally and emotionally. Um, and we've been doing that with Hanjan. Danji was not the case. Our clientele is different. It's in a different neighborhood, tends to be younger. Uh, and I think the younger crowd, they feel a lot more comfortable going out. Uh, and they feel they need to at least walk around the neighborhood. Uh, they want to see their neighborhood stores open, especially the restaurants. Um, so we decided to uh, open up when the city allowed us to have tables outdoors. Uh, and it's been okay. So basically, to answer your question, we had two different restaurants in two different neighborhoods sort of reacting differently. Uh, and, you know, there there is no right or wrong answer. It's I don't know what's going to happen two months, three months down the line. Um, you know, a lot of our clients or customers from Hanjan have been asking, are you going to keep this up with the deliveries because they want the meal kits even after the restaurant's open? Uh, and I'm just going to provide for them what they want, just like, you know, it was the reason why I delivered food for them in the first place. So I'm going to ask you a prying question, which is, which I think is a difficult question for anyone who runs restaurants normally. But like, is this a sustainable business model? I mean, no one no one should go into running a restaurant or being a chef owner because they want to make money. There, there's way more to it, and it's too hard a way to make a living. But is this a model that is, you know, just allowing you to retain a few staffs? I mean, can you can you survive long term in this um... kind of model? That's a very good question. It's a very complicated question. I don't think there's a general answer. I think every restaurant, every chef, every owner has to um, deal with it personally. Um, I can tell you that both of my reds both both of my restaurants combined, I am barely breaking even. Sometimes I lose a little bit per week, but um, is it sustainable? I don't know. I've had years where I, you know, both of my restaurants lost money. I've had years where both of my restaurants made a lot of money. Um, you're right. We don't do it for the money, but because we are responsible for paying our staff, making a living, we adjust. And the things that I had to do, uh, negotiating with my lawyers, um, uh, uh, negotiating through my uh, with my <laughs> lawyer with uh, with uh, the landlord uh, both of them um, reducing rent uh, making deals with our purveyors uh, changing the menu you know it was so many things that we did to adjust to keep the restaurants open to keep you know every week trying to hire more staff so um you know, ultimately we can hire all of them back. You know, the first week the restaurant closed, the restaurants closed, um, I was working with just two staff members, my chef and my general manager. It was us three doing the cooking, doing the cleaning, doing the deliveries. Mm. Um, and now, right now, I have 13 staff members uh, working uh, just because the deliveries have been getting better and better. Uh, and while the delivery has gone down a lot because the city, like I said, a lot of people are leaving town, I think uh, with the outdoor opening, we were able to you know, bring back more staff. And our, our goal or my goal specifically is to hire all of my staff back because they're not getting jobs anywhere else. We're at an economy, we're at a state right now where it's tough for these guys to find jobs anywhere else besides where they were working. So um, another personal thing I'm doing, I'm leaving for Korea next week mm. uh, to film a TV show because I am not meeting, you know, I'm not going to get enough money to meet my mortgage and feed, you know, <laughs> buy my son clothes uh, come, come, you know, the school year. Mm -hmm. So, and I haven't gotten a paycheck from my restaurant since March. Mm. So for me, um, I had to go try to find a way to make money myself. Mm -hmm. And luckily, I do have uh, opportunities in Korea where it's so much better now. <laughs> uh, you know, there's so much better dealing with the corona 
uh, virus that mm. it's almost back to normal, especially filming TV shows and, and, and restaurants opening, that the opportunities were there and I took it and I am heading out next week. Well, congratulations. So is it, there for two weeks. <laughs> wow. Is it a Korean language show then for the Korean market or? Yes. Uh-huh. Oh, neat. And uh, can you say anything more about it? I, don't, I mean, with Netflix, um, it, could be, it could be on <laughs> anywhere around the actually, world. Yeah, it's actually on, on a Discovery Channel. Oh. Um, but it's filmed in Korea uh, for the Korean market. Uh, and I know it's going all over Asia. But mm-hmm. I don't know if it'll come out here because I know it's been filmed in Korea. And Asia's used to having subtitles, reading their own language. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas I think the American Discovery Channel is pretty much all English. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, that, that's exactly. I mean, can you say anything about what the kind of concept is or is that? Yeah, other... it's actually, it's, it's, it's a unique concept. It's, it deals with um, immigrants who are in Korea from different countries like Bangladesh, India, Pakistan, Vietnam, China, Russia. All these immigrants are living in Korea and they want to cook their own food. So what we're doing is we're starting up a, a, a competition, really, to get the best um, ethnic Korean, <laughs> ethnic as in, you know, non-Korean uh, foods into a, a food hall that we're creating for the show. Wow, that's fascinating. And so what's your role? Are you more of the host and sort of facilitator than actually a, a I am a one of the or... judges as okay. well as I will be the only chef hoping to be able to help these these uh contestants to to put out better food. Uh so sort of like a judge like um coach like in MasterChef in the UK. I don't know. Yes. If you've seen that uh-huh. Before. Oh, neat. Well, no, that... I was, you know, I was one of the judges for MasterChef Korea the past uh, two seasons. Ah, well, so, there was your training right there. It, it'll be a similar role. Yeah. Oh, well, that's exciting. I'm happy. I'm happy for you to have found that silver lining that you probably would have said if everything was firing on all cylinders in New York, there was no way you could take the time out to do. You know, I prefer to stay home with my family, especially in this time. Uh, but are they going to be able to travel with you or because of the sort of global situation, did you decide you're going to go by yourself? Um, The public school system, they haven't said that they were going to close. They've actually been pointing towards opening come Mm. September. Mm. So because of that, it's just better if they stay because ultimately we have to quarantine for two weeks Mm. when we go to Korea. Hmm. And for them to just go there for two weeks and then be able to stay another three weeks, I think, then have to come back for school doesn't really make sense. So, hmm. and, you know, traveling internationally at this time, I don't know how safe it is. So I, just well, and it's, it's certainly complicated know. right now with the, and not looking very good for American yeah. restrictions. So I understand. I, while mm. we're on this, I want, I wanted to ask you um, about the nonprofit you started in, in Korea, which I think is called Yori Chunsa. Uh-huh. So can you tell us about it? And, and particularly, I'm, I'm curious how it's going and, and even why, why, especially being mostly in New York, why you started it? Um, you know, I, I do spend a lot of time in Korea. Last last year, I went five times, I think, uh, each time for three to four weeks, um, primarily because of this charity organization. What we do is um, there's an orphanage in Seoul that um, I think 24 chefs, friends of mine, we take turns each week going to cook for these children and our motivation is to get these kids to love food uh, and one day want to become chefs like us. And um, for those who are interested, we train them at our restaurants as a sort of a, uh, you know, the the old French way where there's, uh, what's the term, apprenticeships, I guess. A stage, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, and, I, and I started this organization just because 
it's happening more in this country as well, and definitely in Korea. It's expensive to learn how to cook, and it should not be that way. Culinary schools are, you know, I went to a culinary school, and it's so expensive that even middle class um, kids, students, are having a tough time justifying going to culinary school to become cooks, and that should never. Never be a barrier. Um, I still believe that I learned so much cooking in the kitchens of of Danielle, or even at the internships than I did at school. And I wanted to make sure that the 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 system in Korea wasn't so that only the rich kids learned how to cook or become became chefs, because that's not right. Um, so. You know the economy in Korea is not the best, so these children coming out of orphanages they are at a big disadvantage getting trying to find jobs. Um, so you know it was pretty easy. Wanted to help them cook to get jobs in my friends' restaurants, um, but what we learned was we couldn't just train them to cook. We had to have them fall in love with food first, which they didn't, having lived or living in an orphanage where their food was uh, not the most inspired, <laughs> and they were mm. eating the same food, breakfast, lunch, dinner, uh, seven days a week. Mm. So that's why we started this program, where we are actually going in once a week, every week, um, to cook them inspiring food. We hope. Well, that's really impressive, and I, I was curious if, 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 to ask you about the connection, especially in the, in this moment back in the states, and you yourself as both a cooking school graduate and someone who who did extensive training in the kitchen in other people's kitchens. What do you feel like, even for kids who are more well off, the future holds for aspiring young chefs? Given this changed climate, like does it still make sense for them to go to cooking school? But then on the other hand, are there even going to be jobs in the, in the short term where they can apprentice? Um, yeah, you know, I've been looking at the numbers, reading the numbers. They say conservatively in New York City, 7% of the restaurants will close. I think it's going to be much higher because I have friends who have already closed restaurants. And it's definitely more than 7% of my chef friends who mm. have closed or is definitely just waiting until... They have to close to close. Um, I think people, young kids who have this uh, desire, ambition to become a chef, um, it will not be about money. Uh, it should never have been about money. It's you know, there's there's two two kinds of uh, reasons to become chefs. I think though, one is they want. I wouldn't say egotistic, but it's just this personal um, artistic energy they have. They want to apply to somewhere and food is what they love. That's one reason to become a chef. And another reason is they like to make people happy, which for me is more the case. And I cook. Yeah. I, I mean, I love cooking, but what I love more is to see my customers reactions um, when when they eat my food, when they come to the restaurant, enjoy my food. And that's one of the things that I'm missing now. I know I'm still feeding a lot of people, but I don't get to see them enjoy the food. <laughs> and, and I miss that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know, I, you know, the, I think there'll always be um, people who want to become chefs because it's such a rewarding career. I mean, you make people happy every single day. And, mm-hmm. and you take their money and they are, they're saying thank you to you when they leave. And, and there aren't that many professions where, you know, they pay you and they thank you. Um, so <laughs> that's true. I picked a good one and, you know, I'm sure many more will. And do you think to, to if someone came to you now and said, you know, I've looked all over the city and I really can't find a, a, a stage, should I bite the bullet and take out some loans and go to cooking school, you know, sort of to ride out this downturn? Do you think that's worthwhile? Uh, you know, I've convinced so many people not to go that route. 
and many of them I actually hired uh, to learn how to cook at my restaurant. Um, I still think it's the best way. Um, if you don't have a connection, if you don't know um, if you're willing to really sacrifice your body, your body, because because physically it's it's a it's a grueling profession. You know, we're on our feet. We're on our feet 14, 15, 16 hours a day. Um, mm. We don't get weekends off. Um, if they're willing to do that, I'm willing to hire them and mm. teach them how to cook. Well, you might have some people lining up even then. We'll, we'll, we'll see how we, <laughs> we yeah, get on. It's, not, it's just not uniquely me. I think every restaurant is willing to teach young people how to cook. Uh, but yet you went to culinary yeah. school. Did that have a lot to do with being a, a, a sort of career changer, do you think? And, and well, for... For me, I hadn't decided to change careers when I went to culinary school. I took a, a year off of medical school just because physically I wasn't doing well. Um, and it was, uh, I had a year left, but after that year, it would have been residency, which for me would have been six years. So this was my last last opportunity to take some time off. And, it, and I took a one-year uh, sabbatical and during that year, I had nothing to do, and I wanted to learn how to cook. So I attended um, uh, FCI at that time. Now it's called ICC, I believe. Mm. Um, so it wasn't a career change moment for me. It was sort of just like, I want to know how to cook. What ultimately ended up happening was, you know, FCI wanted me to, well, wanted all their students to stage or intern at restaurants while they were attending classes. And I did that as well. And I just fell in love with professional kitchens. Um, so yeah, that's what happened with me. Uh, if I had decided to become a professional cook, um, after having read Daniel Belude's letters to a young chef, I would have gone straight to him, uh, to Danielle and just started washing dishes <laughs> i see no no that makes sense so um i'm glad i'm glad we covered that all right we're going to take a break and we'll be back to talk more with chef huni kim about his new cookbook my korea stay with us This episode is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee, representing 75% of U.S.-grown Montmorency tart cherry production. With over 100 articles published in health journals stating the vast health benefits of Michigan's superfruit, it's best to choose the cherry with more. U.S. Montmorency tart cherries. They're available year-round, dried, frozen, canned, juice, and concentrate. Learn more about the wonderfully U.S.-grown Montmorency tart cherry at ChooseCherries.com. Welcome back. We're talking to Chef Huni Kim of New York City's Danji and Hanjan about his new cookbook, My Korea, Traditional Flavors and Modern Recipes. So Huni, what do, what do you really, how do you define or how would you explain sort of a nutshell to someone who hasn't had it or is unfamiliar with it, what Korean food is all about? Um, um... Well, there's what Korean food was about, um, should be about, and then there's what Korean food is in in this country, <laughs> and and there's 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 a distinct difference. Um, Korean food historically has always been about health and nutrition. Um, the first Korean cookbook ever uh, written you know, almost 700 years ago, 600 years ago, uh, was actually a medical handbook. A doctor wrote it. Um, mm -hmm. So there's there's a tie. There's a connection between medicine, health, and cooking and food um, traditionally. I think Korean food now uh, in many of the restaurants, 
not just here in this country, all over the world, and even in Korea, it's less about the nutrition value of the ingredients, uh, but more about making money. And making money at restaurant basically means buying cheap ingredients, making it taste good with, with cheap chemicals, <laughs> uh, additives, uh, and selling it for a profit. It's, you know, I run restaurants, but Korean food, the, the, the spirit, the, the, the foundation of Korean food is such, it goes against what restaurants are about, you know, having to make a profit because, because it is a business. Um, and I feel like when you go to Korea, the best Korean food that I, I, I enjoy, I have, I, I'm able to eat are never at restaurants. It's always at people's homes because mm. at homes, when you're cooking for your family, you don't lose that philosophy of nutrition, your health. Um, and because of that, you buy the best ingredients. And when you buy the best ingredients, you don't really even have to be a good cook. The, the flavors of the ingredients, it comes through. Um, and that's very similar to what Julia Child's, you know, her philosophy is. Uh, and I feel that's the same with Korea or Korean food. Yeah, I was very struck by that in, in, in how clearly that comes across in, in, in your book. Um, and so was that kind of one of the motivations for writing the book? I, I know people were sort of from the success of your restaurants, they were possibly chasing you to write a book, any book, but you mm. still had discretion in what you chose. And in, in, in writing the cookbook, did you have that in mind of kind of debunking the, the sort of stereotypes and trends or misperceptions of what Korean food is in, in, in doing this cookbook? Um, eventually, but I started writing this cookbook eight years ago. <laughs> um, yeah, I got my advance eight years ago. Yeah, it's about the same time it took Julia to write Mastering. <laughs> uh, it, it, you know, eight years ago, there weren't any Korean cookbooks, I don't think, uh, English written ones. Uh, it was before Mangchi. Uh, it was before a lot of these other Korean books, Korean cookbooks that came out. So for me, I was writing an introduction to Korean food cookbook, and I just didn't have any interesting stories to tell. Um, and it that came through in, in the manuscripts. It was rejected. Uh, my editor, uh, Maria Guanashelli, um, she actually edited uh, The Joy of Cooking, I think. Yeah, no, for those um, who don't know, yeah, she's a legendary sort of, not successor, but contemporary and still, well, just retired uh, legendary yes. uh, food cookbook editor and Alex Warner Shelley's mother. Yes. Uh, and, and Maria, she rejected my first two manuscripts. She said it wasn't good enough. She basically said, I don't hear your voice. Um, and then throughout that time, there were many Korean books that came out that actually did a wonderful job introducing Korean food to, you know, Americans. Um, so I felt, uh, that I didn't need to do that anymore, that I didn't have to introduce anything that I could sort of assume people knew a little bit about Korean food. Uh, but what they did know, they weren't going deep into, uh, what Korean food should be or really is, or what it is to me. And hence the title, My Korea. Um, and it was really important that I brought the readers back to Korea. So, you know, half of that book was written while I was working in Korea. I made sure my photographer and I toured the whole country together, taking pictures of, of dishes, of restaurants that inspired my menu and my restaurants here in New York. Um, and, you know, the recipes in the book, of course. Um, and throughout that journey, I think this, this, this My Korea book came out uh, very different than any other Korean cookbook that's available today because for the first time, I did not have a responsibility to, to teach people what Korean food is uh, rather than um, to delve a lot more into the foundation uh, of what Korean food 
was and is to me now. And it's very personal. You know, even the other Korean chefs in New York, you know, I talk to them and we have different philosophies and we have different definitions of what Korean food is. Um, but that's what a book is about, right? You know, it's about how I see Korean food uh, and it's deeply personal. And that's why I was able to write it. Well, I think I work with a lot of writers and have for for more years than I will cop to. Um, and um, it, it, I think we always say that the the personal is what makes things universal. And I think the book is is lovely because of the personal stories you tell. But I also would say it's very comprehensive. And whether you were trying to dispel myths or educate, it's also comprehensive in the way that it's very instructive about the building blocks of Korean food. Like you talk about, I don't know if you're the first person to use this term, but I like the Korean holy trinity of what underlays and how both, you know, fermentation is a really important part of Korean culture and cultural cooking, but then also the the way flavors are built and layered and using, you know, what are ultimately pretty, sometimes pretty mundane um, ingredients like the cabbage and the soybean. Mm. Um, having worked or having owned restaurants, Danji and Hanjan, that practices those principles or philosophies every single day, it was easy for me to write that. I mean, the reason why I opened Danji in the first place was because I did not think the, the Koreatown restaurants here in Manhattan were they were doing justice to what Korean food was all about. They were, you know, all of their ingredients were supermarket ingredients. Um, and, you know, it's it's fine, but, you know, mass-produced changs, fermented mass-produced uh, sauces, they just don't have the the flavor, nor do they have the, the nutrition, uh, nutritious value of the artisanal made ones. And I wanted to make sure that Korean food in New York uh, wasn't defined by these supermarket ingredients. So before I opened Anji, I made sure that I was able to uh, get these jungs from directly from Korean farms that you know they made by hand, um, and that was easy to convey because I, you know that's what we do at my restaurants, um, and I'm glad that that to you was interesting because. Um, you know, there's always there was always a doubt where what was I pushing it too far? Was I becoming too geeky about these ingredients? Because most people are gonna are not gonna know what these chungs are. They will know the menu items that they've eaten that has chung in it, but do they really care about these ingredients that are very tough to find in the U.S.? And another reason um, that I put this book out the way I did was because these artisanal jungs were not available 10 years ago. I had to bring them from Korea. But now you can actually find them at the uh, online uh, at some supermarkets. But there's definitely sort of gourmet Korean ingredient shopping available in the U.S. now, and they deliver for free. So, so it, you know, the timing was good. And these ingredients that I, I tell you to cook with, at, you know, in this book, you can find them much easier now than when I first writing this book uh, eight years ago. Well, that's good to hear. I, I did want to also ask you how you felt about, and you, you've kind of touched upon this, but um, when you're speaking of, of those ingredients, like in some ways, Korean food is becoming Americanized. There are different versions of it or people going nuts for hot wings and kind of hot wings, rest, Korean hot wings restaurants opening. And then also you, you talked about in the book how, how you saw that some of American habits, probably some good, many bad, are also becoming more common in Korea in terms of eating and drinking culture. So how, how do you feel about that cultural interplay or what are your thoughts on it? Um, well, first for Korean food, you know, any food that gets people who are un unfamiliar with Korean food, interested in Korean food, I think it's fine. I think it's great. Um, and, you know, most New Yorkers, I think their first foray into a Korean, uh, restaurant was the typical Korean barbecue restaurant. 
Mm. And people who love the Korean barbecue, they have gone to other restaurants where they don't serve barbecue, such as my restaurants. Um, so, you know, any any food that that promotes Korean food or or increases interest in Korean food helps. Um, as like for, Korean barbecue as a gateway drug to more, more, more seriously it, it, expensive. It, it, I think I think it works because um, you know my restaurants. I couldn't have been able to open my restaurants if the K Town restaurants weren't there. Um, you know when I opened my Danji ten years ago, there was already a big uh, a, a lot of people who were interested in Korean food. Um, who had been to Korean barbecue restaurants, who maybe mm. wanted to try something that was also Korean, but not Korean barbecue. And that's what we serve at Danji and Hanjam. But um, definitely it helps. It helped. Uh, and with Korean you know, wings now, you're talking about a, a younger generation of people who are interested in not just Korean food, but Korean culture with K-pop, K-beauty, mm. Um, and Korean chicken wings, I guess. Um, <laughs> yes, <laughs> having quite a political uh, kind of a conflammation right now. Yeah, it, it works. It works, uh, especially when you know Korean food is not as established as Chinese food, Thai food, or even Indian food. Um, mm. You know, you you never see you know sitcom shows where they deliver their ordering in Korean takeout. Right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and and oh, sorry, to me that's. That's what established uh, ethnic cuisine is when TV shows are doing takeout um, of your cuisine. Um, I've never yeah, thought of okay. it that way, but uh, <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I think some of it is relative to also just proportionally. There are so many more Chinese people and Indian people in the world, and they're also living and the immigration patterns, you know, Korean immigration to the States has been quite concentrated in certain more so than other um new immigrants so that might yes have something to do with it. yes but we'll get there we'll get there but we'll get <laughs> the day is coming that, that orders in korean food for takeout <laughs> well and right the, the more people you know experience the food and enjoy it and want it more that that just that leads to the food food is is really the entry point toward you know i think cross-cultural understanding and appreciation you know something that marcus samuelson's been doing with his show and now Padna. Padma Lakshmi is doing with her new show. Mm. Um, and especially in these times when you really can't travel, I think the ethnic restaurants gives you a little bit uh, experience of that culture. Um, you know, even if you can't go to the restaurant to have an, you know, Indian food delivered to your home. Uh, I think it's, you're right. You, you, you get to experience a little bit of a, of a different culture uh, through the food. Uh, even at your home. Um, I, no, I that's a really. That, I think that's a really good point, and that. But also, kind of a troubling thing of if 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 you're stuck at home or stuck in your whatever bubble you you live in for safety, and restaurants aren't surviving, then then those little bits of escapism and exploration and and fun are 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 very much in jeopardy. Hmm. Um. Yeah, and as much, even if you are doing a lot of deliveries, it's difficult. So you asked this before, do I think this is going to be uh, a strategy that could that could um, continue? And I will say for the majority of the restaurants, we are not making ends meet just doing delivery. Uh, and when this weather turns, where outdoor seating is not available to us anymore in New York City, things are going to get <laughs> much more difficult. Um, well, yeah, and I've, so said it, to, yeah. I've said to people too that as you've been talking about your passion for cooking and becoming a chef and, and serving people and making people happy, delivery there are very few chefs who go into the restaurant business to do delivery that's not what they have in mind and delivery is a much historically and even for korean restaurants that did it or any other type of restaurants it was much more transactional right it's no chef's dream of how they want to serve their food i don't think um you know that's how i looked at it before we started delivering 
Um, but you know, when I know the the clientele who used to come into my restaurant with their families, and I know that that family's who I'm cooking for, I do think this situation has mm, upgraded the the. I wouldn't. I don't know. If the quality of delivery food is correct, but definitely there's more thinking going on when when you're doing delivery in this situation because you're not cooking for people who just would rather not go out tonight uh, and feel like ordering in. You're cooking for a, a, a family uh, of of food that they they need for nourishment a little bit more for health. Um, it's not entertainment anymore. And, you know, restaurants, it was mostly for entertainment. People what needed to eat, but they they came to my restaurants to have fun, to have a good time, to be happy. Uh, and because that's not available, we have to sort of give them some sort of happiness with our food. And, you know, we change our meal kit menus every single week so people don't get bored of it. We are always putting new items, uh, seasonal items, uh, fun items, um, you know, putting a theme on a, a weekly menu as well. Um, so, you know, I don't consider it transactional anymore now that I'm doing it because there's a lot more involved now. And I think that's because of this situation. And that's what it needs to be. You know, people order, you know, delivery food, hoping for the best. And a lot of the times they're disappointed. And that's not our fault because when food travels, <laughs> you know, it's not going to be as good as when you're eating it at the restaurant. Um, but because of that, we need to do, we need to compensate with, with other sort of ways we can make them happy. And that's what we've been doing. I like that. I think that's a, a good place to, uh, move forward and take a break. Uh, afterwards, uh, Huni's going to share his Julia moment. Get in touch. Send us an email or a voice memo to contact at juliachildfoundation.org or better yet, tweet us at juliachildjcf and let us what, know what you think about today's show and share your ideas for future guests. All right, we'll be right back. When you flip anything, you really... You just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia Moment. Here is when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory, moment, or how she's inspired them in their career. All right, Huni, what's your Julia moment? Um, so mine started uh, in when I was in culinary school. Um, I, I was a pretty good cook <laughs> at school. So, um, you know, I was thinking about maybe uh, trying to do this professionally. But the one thing that always uh, bothered me was I was probably the oldest one in my class because um, I was 30, 31 when I when I was uh, attending culinary school. So I just thought, maybe I'm too old. Uh, and I was talking to my professor about my concern. And she basically said, you know, I think uh, Julia Child was uh, older than you when she started cooking. And I looked that up. And basically, there's a quote <laughs> when she says, I was 32 when I started cooking. Up until then, I just ate. And that was me. You know, I've always loved eating food. Uh, always loved going to restaurants. And, um, you know, if Julia's child started at 32, then that was not an issue. It should not be an issue for me um, starting at that age. So, you know, thanks to her, I actually, it helped me become a chef. That is so great. I, I'm sitting here just uh, beaming with a smile because that's such a, a lovely uh, further connection. So thank you uh, for sharing that. And thank you for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me, Todd. 
A pleasure. And thanks, everyone, for joining us and listening in. So for the latest from Chef Huni Kim, to hear more about his uh, upcoming show in Korea, I bet, he's at Huni Kim on Instagram and Twitter. It's H-O-O-N-I-K-I-M. And you can find both restaurants at donji.nyc and at hanjan.nyc on Instagram. And it's at donji.nyc and at hanjan26 on Twitter. The cookbook is My Korea, Traditional Flavors, Modern Recipes by Huni Kim with Aki Komazawa. Features more than 90 recipes and gorgeous photographs by Kristen Teague. It's out now from W.W. Norton. Ask or search for it at your favorite bookseller. Stay in touch for the upcoming Julia Child Award announcement and more news you don't want to miss. Make sure you're following us at Julia Child on Facebook and at Julia Child Foundation on Instagram. It's at Julia Child JCF and I'm at T. Shulkin on Twitter. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at WGBH. Thanks to my co-producer at the Foundation, Lauren Selkow, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network today, Matt Patterson. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Valtorni. Please give us a review. It really helps new listeners discover the show. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after wherever you find your podcast. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter. Our handle is at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com forward slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.